I'm telling you, these people are Satanists. As I sit here, they are Satanists. Nothing will stop the Satanic total release. Bart, stop testing Satan. Welcome to the place where we are so sick of the question, why Satan, that we named the podcast after it. Hello, everyone. I hope your week went well, and let's get to it, because today's show's a little long. Today, we're going to talk about science, and the show is all about science. From how I found that learning is way better than prayer, how learning about science is part of being a Satanist, and how we actually handle that, that there are both real controversies and fake ones in science, and the important ones are something to consider. And at the end of the show, we're going to be talking about really cool news stories. Just to tease you about them, the sentence, Antimatter Stars, is part of one of the news stories. So, it's pretty cool. Anyway, a lot of stuff to cover. Let's get a move on. Okay, I had a busy two weeks or so. First, I had my second shot, which was great, other than the three days after it, which kind of sucked. My grandmother, she actually had to go to the hospital, which she even had to be put on a ventilator for a short time. She's out of the hospital now, and I honestly think that they should have kept her a little longer since they did rush her out in about two, three days, which to me is really quick. But I didn't panic about either of those things at all. When I was feeling really ill from the second shot, I didn't beg the nothingness that it would go away. I didn't pray like I might have when I was a believer. I laid in bed at 5 a.m. shivering, and then just one moment struck me, and I realized, you know what? I don't know if I ever learned why this happened to me. Like, why do I shiver when I get a fever? And I didn't pray. I didn't get angry or pissed off or wish I didn't get the vaccine because I knew this is going to suck for a few days. I knew that going in. So what did I do? I learned about it. I, at 5 a.m., decided I'm going to learn why, when I have a fever, I shiver and I shake and my teeth chatter. And I learned it was actually pretty cool. What I learned was I learned that because my body cranks up the temperature, the thermostat in my body now believes that this higher temperature is what should be normal. It then causes the rest of my body to freak out, thinking that I'm freezing. So it had to make my body shiver to create heat in the most expedient way it could. And it was strange. Like, I knew I wasn't dying or anything. Like, I knew that from the beginning. But knowing what it was, and knowing how it worked, and understanding that the shivering was the limited actions that my body could take, trying to do what it had to do. And that was comforting. With my grandmother, she was being treated for pneumonia. And I'm not exactly sure where I learned this, but I learned years back that when you treat pneumonia, it actually makes you breathing worse for a while. It ends up loosening all that liquid and mucus in your lungs, and it causes you to have a harder time breathing when you're being treated for pneumonia. So I was expecting it. I was expecting her to get worse before she got better. Now, this isn't to say I didn't get worried. I was. I was worried as everyone else. But I wasn't as worried as the rest of my family. And I found that interesting. I found it so interesting, the fact that, like, just the knowledge of what was happening took away some of the fear. In both cases, I didn't feel as shitty when I was sick. Like, I still felt shitty, but there was some sort of, like, I know why. I know why this is happening. 
And it was the same thing with my grandmother. I knew why she was getting worse. And I knew that the ventilator was more of a protective measure. They wanted to make sure that the treatment didn't make her worse to the point where she would be in trouble. And honestly, I remembered back in both these incidents, back to when, even when I wasn't that much of a believer, when I was still on sort of the borderline, I'd still pray or beg to some supernatural force, whatever was out there, to make whatever was wrong better. And it it never, to me, it never fixed it. It never made me feel better. Because even with all the praying and begging and whatever I felt I could do at the time, it didn't feel like I was actually doing anything. And learning the science of it, I'm still not doing anything. But it's a different type of not doing anything. It's the understanding that there's nothing I can do. And it's not that something or someone is looking at me and going, no, I'm not going to help you. It's just me understanding that this is how the universe works. And I've had some people say to me, doesn't that make it feel worse? The understanding that it's just a cold, careless universe that has no thought or mind behind it that is acting on you. And I disagree. It gives me comfort that there is no one singling me out, as I said before. There is no one out to get me. There is nothing I've done to earn what I'm facing. There is no judgment. And that's just how it is. That we all share this universe of randomness together. And it could happen to anyone. And to me, at least to me, that's comforting. When it comes to Satanism, there's a lot of focus when it comes to science. There's a lot of versions of Satanism that have whole tenets around it. Like in the Satanic Temple, there's the fifth tenet, which talks about following one's scientific understanding and conforming your beliefs to that. Now, part of what is implied in that tenet that always has me wondering to myself is, how much science do I feel I need to push myself to understand? I know there's no way I'll be able to understand all of it. I, I don't have the ability, I feel, to understand all of it. I don't even have the time to delve into the science as much as people do as those who do it for a living. So how much is to the best of my understanding? It's one of those things that, as a Satanist, to me, it's one of the hard parts of actually being a Satanist. Our religion leaves most of its practice up to the individuals. But that's also the great thing about being a Satanist. That's what being a Satanist is. It's trying to figure a lot of things out for yourself. Yes, you, you can get help. There's nothing wrong about that. You can listen to views of others. I mean, that's kind of the point of this podcast as a whole. But in terms of where do we, where do we even start when it comes to science? It's a big, giant field. It's huge. Do I learn the history of science? How far back do I go back? Do I look at all the different theories that are out there? Even the smallest little ones that are barely understood or recognized at the moment, and the ones that have some burdening hint of what may be, but no one understands it yet. Is there a level of understanding that's expected of us? And expected by who? First off, we need to look at that question. 
It's about what we expect of ourselves. We really can't worry about what others expect of us beyond a certain point. Now, I don't believe that expecting something of someone is wrong. I personally expect if people have a view on something, they should at least know a little bit about it. So how about we start from there? Everyone, I'm sure, holds a view without having a great grasp on that view. It's natural. And it's not necessarily bad. You can lean on the knowledge of others who you trust. But I like to try to take it upon myself to understand what I have views on. When those views involve science, I at least try to understand the basics of my view. Trying, I think, is the thing about Satanists. We are accountable to ourselves. It's important to know yourself. I'm never going to be great at math. I'm just downright bad at it. So I know that if I watch something with a lot of math in it, it's going to go right over my head. So I just try to grasp everything around the math. And that seems to work out quite a bit. I, I might miss a few things, but I can go, okay, I'm going to take the word on this person who is demonstrated to me by all other metrics that I can trust them. So I'm going to just trust them on the math because everything else, from my understanding, makes sense in works with what other scientists have said and works with what other people have said. So I think that's a good stepping stone. Now, what about things that aren't linked to views? Example would be when I researched my fever. That gave me a template for myself. I learn things as I encounter them. When I encounter something and I don't know, I tend to write it down or put it in my phone and I make a note to myself of, I'm going to look this up. That isn't to say that learning something before you encounter it isn't a good idea. It really is. Like, if you just think of something, it's like, huh, I wonder why this works. It's a great idea to look it up. It's fun. It can give you a direction of things you might study or learn. But it can be hard to just think, oh, I want to know this, when you might never have thought of it before. So learning things as I encounter them, I found is incredibly useful. Because you encounter things all the time. And if you want to try to expand your knowledge base, like after the fever, like after this, like the fever that I had and spurred me on to research, I've been trying to do this more. I see an ant on the front porch. I'm like, what type of ant is that? It's a tiny, it's a tiny little ant. There's a big ant. Like, is there a difference? What's the difference? And it's just a stupid little thing. Like, what is the name of that ant that I see around my house all the time? It's not important scientific knowledge, but I looked into it. And it led me down a pathway of other interesting stuff. That's, some, that's the cool thing about science is one little science thing can lead you to something you didn't expect. I don't remember what I went on to, but I ended up on something to do with birds. I, I can't for the life of me think of it right now, but it had, had to do with birds and it was kind of cool. I wrote something down a note about it, but it was weird and it was it was fun just going down that alleyway. Knowing what you don't know is probably one of the hardest parts of learning. And sometimes we can try to learn about things that we take for granted. And sometimes we can even make a hobby out of it going, I don't know how this stuff works. I really want to learn. And that's kind of how I got into my working with like um, electronics and just like low voltage electricity. I had no idea how like a lot of electronics work. So I was curious and I decided to look into it, and I, I learned some pretty cool things. And, and it's kind of funny. I actually feel way more connected 
through science knowledge than I ever did when I was a believer, or at least when I believed I was connected to things through spiritual means anyway. I look at my dog now, and I look at them and I realize how damn close we are biologically. I mean, not close enough to where we could donate organs to each other or give a blood transfusion, but on the universal scale of biology, of what could be, and what we already know is out there, we're pretty damn close. And oddly enough, back before I was a Satanist, and honestly, it's hard to say if I changed this view because I became a Satanist, or if me changing these type of views is part of the reasons why I became a Satanist. But back before that, when I was just a plain atheist, I, I used to try to learn knowledge really more as a weapon. Like, it was just a weapon in my arsenal. It was a tool that I could use when having a debate. And while having knowledge can lend your ideas and your views more power in the persuasive aspect of it, I think viewing it like that, it makes you less persuasive as a whole. It's just something about the way you hold yourself when you're talking about this. It's, you can, sometimes you can tell when you look at someone debating who's passionate about the subject they're talking about or finds it fascinating and those who are just using it as a weapon against an idea that someone else holds or a person. Honestly, you can kind of see this sometimes on the right. They'll take a little bit of a science that they understand and they'll just use it as a weapon against someone else. Even though really the science that they have isn't necessarily correct. That's the other thing we need, we need to be careful about, actually, is understanding that a little bit of knowledge can lead you to the wrong conclusion. Like, a very good example, if you've ever seen people try to misuse the idea of, like, anything to do with quantum, then you'll understand what I'm talking about. Like, the dual slit experiment gets misused all the time. Quantum entanglement gets misused all the time. So I think it's very important that not only do we understand things, but we understand that what we do know is probably a fraction of what people who do this for a living actually know. And what they know is a fraction of what there is. I, I was watching something where it showed sort of an expanding bubble of knowledge and it noted that the more we learn that we know, the more we learn we have no clue. And there's actually some really cool news stories I'm going to talk about later. One of which has the word antimatter stars in it, which blew my mind. But now, now that I've taken just learning for the sake of learning things, when I sit on my porch on a windy day and I get a mindgasm thinking about all the different factors that go into air blowing over my trash barrel for the third fucking time that day, it's kind of cool. Every now and then, it is science itself that actually makes the news. Normally, these can either be for very stupid reasons or for actual good reasons. The two reasons I'm going to touch on now are when you see government complaining that science is using money for stupid stuff, and then there is the morality of unethical research and how to deal with that. First, I'm going to touch on the lighter subject. Every now and then, government complains that science spends too much money on stupid things that aren't necessary. And these things you've probably heard come up in the news. They 
make uh, headlines a lot of times when there's not much going on. Which, oddly enough, for the last few years, there's been too much going on, so we haven't really heard about these. The big famous ones that I've heard, and I actually found articles like explaining why they're a thing, was the famous Trump on the treadmill, which the let's limit all spending in government people complain that, hey, why the fuck do we need to spend like thousands, hundreds of thousands, even up to a million dollars on watching a fucking shrimp? run on a treadmill and for the most people you go yeah why would you need to like spend like a million dollars to put a shrimp on a treadmill it makes a cool video but that's stupid it sounds like it should make sense then you have another one that was i don't remember what the exact uh fly type was but it was railing against why so much money was being put forward on the reproduction of a certain type of cattle fly. And people like, they're flies. They reproduce. Why do we care about their cycle? They don't live very long. They die. They make more flies. What's the big deal about cattle flies? The other one that I've heard come up a little bit is like, the whole, hey, why are they doing a study on linking penis size and STD rates? And you get this whole thing of, well, science are just perverts and they want to measure people's penis sizes and they want to figure out ways to graft the government for money and they spend millions on this nonsense. And when you lay it out like that, it seems to make sense of why are we spending this much money on these seemingly stupid things? It makes no sense. Why are we putting shrimp on treadmills and having them running? Well, this is actually something I wondered about. I'm like, there is no way, knowing what I actually know about science, there's actually no way that a scientist is just going to put, you know, a shrimp on a treadmill for just the shits and giggles. And there's no way that actually putting shrimp on a treadmill is going to cost a million dollars. You always feel like this thing's like, well, the government spends a million dollars on a hammer. Well, I mean, it, it's not a hammer. But when when you actually dive into actually these studies some of them are interesting so i actually decided to look up just like some of these studies and i actually found articles that mention these studies as well but the shrimp on treadmill these shrimps are actually being bred because they're such a common food source they're the shrimps that a lot of places use you know to have shrimp so what ends up happening is in captivity, a lot of these shrimps weren't reproducing as well. The shrimps were moving sluggishly, they weren't very active, they were getting sick and dying, and they weren't quite sure why. Because shrimps eat, you know, a lot of junk. They're, they, they filter feeds a bit. They're a little like um, lobsters, where they just eat, like, stuff off the ground. They eat, like, mold on the or uh, algae and they just will eat everything and their environment is not really the cleanest and in water and in a closed containment you have a ton of bacteria because bacteria exist especially in um when you're trying to um breed something in captivity there's gonna be bacteria so the scientist thought to you know save the shrimp industry or to at least make it so the costs don't skyrocket, that they should investigate why they're having such an issue with the shrimp. 
So they did. They started looking at different types of bacteria, what the effects were, and it came to where they wanted to see if this certain bacteria that they found had an effect on shrimp activity. So what they did was a scientist didn't want to spend a shit ton of money, so he cobbled together some spare parts and built this treadmill for like 50 bucks. And it was the easiest, cheapest way for him to actually test their stamina. So they threw the shrimps on a treadmill who were infected with different bacteria and they have them run on a treadmill. It's actually quite genius when you think about it. You see, like, which ones are moving, their speed, and you can kind of get an idea about, like, if they're sick. Because, you know, you can't ask a lobster, do you have a high temperature? They don't have temperatures. So, like, I was just reading all this stuff. Like, figuring out if a shrimp is sick is a lot harder than figuring out if a mammal's sick. And just doing this for each and every, like, aspect of bacteria, yes, they have bacteria. They're sick. But which bacteria is what's causing the most trouble? And so they just went with the treadmill, which is awesome and inventive. And so the funny enough, the video that you see of the treadmill shrimp is actually the effort of the scientists trying to save the government money by doing it the cheapest way possible with scrap that he collected made a treadmill. What most of the money went to from looking it up was the scientists who were spending money to figure out how to save or keep afloat or maintain an industry. This is the type of stuff that politicians throw money at all the time. Like, well, our state is dependent on our shrimp, so let's make sure we put money into the shrimp industry. Yes, you, you threw millions of dollars at the shrimp industry. Some of it's going to go to science. You do understand that to make sure that, you know, the shrimp stay alive because that's fucking important. You're going to notice this in the next one about the flies. Very similar uh, reasons why they exist. But looking at this, apparently the scientists weren't even paid that well. They were paid jack shit. And the funny thing is, I found a lot of this information on a site that is for science for students. So apparently, there's students who are learning about the reasons for this stuff. And the government can't be bothered to actually investigate why a shrimp is on a treadmill. They can't be bothered. So... We have an understanding about why government and science don't work well. It's one, they, they probably don't want to know the answer, to be honest. And then we have the studying of the life cycle of a certain type of fly that lives around cattle that was completely ridiculed by the people whose state this is actually important in because they raise a lot of cattle. The reason why this is actually important is because just running around, moving around, they're animals. They get beat up, they get cuts, they roll around in the dirt to, like, cool off. There might be a sharp rock, they get a cut. They brush against the fence the wrong way, they get a cut. Or whatever have you. They Animals get cut up, especially, like, a farm animal. Any animal in a wild, natural environment 
because they're not hanging. The cows aren't in the farmer's house sleeping on the couch like my dog. They're outside a lot of times just running around and walking around and doing what cows do. So, you know, they're going to get injured a lot. Like, very minor injuries. However, there's these flies that I'm sorry if this is slightly gross, but what they will do, they will lay eggs inside small wounds of the cattle. And this can cause massive infections, which you can guess, will kill the cow. And from what I'm looking at, if not treated, it will kill the cow in two weeks. And because it's a small cut, and there might be, like, hundreds of cows, because, you know, farmer, they're raising a lot of cows. Like, I've been to small cow farms. so They, like, use them for milk, and, like, they make ice cream, which, if you've never had ice cream made by a farm it's great i recommend it if you can get to a farm with cows that makes their own ice cream it's amazing so i've seen that like even small farms can have a shit ton of cows so you can only imagine what a more large-scale farm is going to have in terms of cows so they can't like check every small cut on a cow so they need to figure like the life cycle of these flies to tell, like, what time of year they tend to do this, if there's certain weather that they lay their eggs in. So you have cows that don't die. And you can have an understanding, like, when in the cycle, like, what types of cuts do they tend to do this with? Is there any type of, like, uh, types of parts of the cow that they might go and infect more? Like, is it... Do they go onto the shoulder more, the stomach, or things like that? This is why that study came about. It is the same politicians who were ranting about these cow studies who were the ones who were likely going to benefit from this stuff. It is like the libertarian Texans who were screaming, Why are we spending all this money on these stupid studies? Well, you fucking idiot. It's because you like your cows. You have a big cow industry. You complain when anyone tells you to cut down on meat at all. And you're like, well, I want my burgers. Well, if you want your burgers for not, like, costly amount of money, we need to know how to keep the cows alive till they get to the point where you can, you know, slaughter them and turn them into meat for you to eat. Or even just, like, milk or Because you don't want a sick cow giving milk because their milk's going to be infected and bad because that's how bodies work. And the other study, the other one didn't have as much information on this. I had to find this somewhere else because it was not on the student one, which was a really good article. But the link between penis size and STDs, it was just, they were looking at STDs and trying to figure out, like, different aspects about them. And it's just a small part of the study. It's sort of like how you have this big table of all variables. And just, you're a doctor studying something, so you take into account all the different variables. I don't know. We're looking at STDs. Does this person's anatomy... Is it a slightly different color than the, this person's anatomy? Is it 
slightly different from this? Is the size different? Is the shape different? Things like that. I don't know. Is that does it have more hair? You get all these different types of things in a study to try to figure out how STDs spread. And I'm guaranteeing you the likelihood of size being on the top of the list of things they were looking for isn't probably very big. However, I can think of reasons why you might want to study that. Like surface area. Is, the, is surface area important? I don't know. And you know what? Because I don't know is why you ask these questions. So anytime you get someone who says, well, did you hear that they did this and they put a thing on a treadmill or they were wondering about the life cycle of flies? You ask like, well, is that all they were studying? Like, do you know what the study was? And people in government have access to like, they can call in the scientists and say, hey, can you explain to me why you studied this? They can do that rather than going on TV and pitching a hissy fit. And I think that there's two options for this. One, they're completely ignorant of how science works. And two, they don't care why it was done because they just want to rail about it for whatever political issue they want to use it to push. And I think it might be both, but I think it's largely the second one. Considering you just had, like, a few weeks ago, maybe it wasn't that long ago, Lindsey Graham coming out saying, well, I've looked at all the science, and I've looked around the world, and I've been on trips with my friend John McCain, and I have to say, I think climate change is real. First, what the fuck? Secondly, John McCain's been dead for a few years. So if that trip had convinced you that climate change is real, why have you been complaining for years that it's a hoax or that the science isn't in? If you, this is why I am convinced that it's not that they're ignorant. The, the part that we need to remember is a lot of the politicians who dismiss science, they're not stupid. They probably know the science. Just for them, it's better to feign the ignorance or feign the disbelief for whatever political views they have. And honestly, even if some of these scientific studies were what they appear to be, and they were seemingly random, like, hey, what happens if we put a shrimp on a treadmill? I honestly think those are things we might want to still look at because they wondered, like, what would happen? And sometimes, if you look at science throughout history... The strangest discoveries that we've ever made is going, you know what? I wonder what would happen if we did X. Who knows? You might find something interesting. And discoveries are not always done in the best way. And here is where I'm going to transition to the next part of this topic on research and how there are actual debates among science, like the use of science and use of certain research that is not garbage. There are debates that are important. In science, there's actually a big debate on what to do with research and discoveries that come through unethical means, whether it be the Nazis, the Tuskegee experiments... 
And if you just think the Tuskegee experiments was the big one, there was so many different medical experiments done on black people and other minority groups and women that when I was just looking into this, it was pretty disgusting. And it's a heavy topic. On one hand, this information might never have been discovered any other way. And even me saying that, I feel like kind of sick to my stomach just saying that. And that's not to say that this point of view would support any of that that's done. It's just horrible. And that's sort of where the other side of the coin comes in, where on the other hand, if you use this research, there's a fear that the methods could become legitimate. A good example on this is the Nazi scientist who made rockets, von Braun. He's often credited as the person who started modern rocketry. When there was, I think it was a memorial when he died, and there was an article written up about him. I'm not sure where I read this from. But it was actually not mentioned that he was a fucking Nazi. And that's part of the problem. I can understand that side of the argument very, very well. It's not an easy debate. Scientists who work with these research notes, who have to like look at this knowledge and like they understand where it comes from, they say in like different things I've read in different interviews where they come to, they feel strange. Like they're, they feel sort of unsettled sometimes when they actually like have to like look at some of these notes and just see who wrote the fucking paper. Like, and they, they worry that like in some ways they're justifying things, but do we deny its use when it could save lives? It's, there's some important things that we know because of a good example. One that came up was hypothermia. Like a lot of what we know of hypothermia is from Nazi experiment research. And that's horrible. Like just, just me saying that you can think what was probably done to get these results. And I am not joking. I feel slightly sick in my stomach just talking about this it's like just it because when you say like hypothermia studied by nazis i'm already getting like images in my head of like poor people like women men children like people who are sick being like put in like an ice bath or something and forced to like stay in there and like it's horrible like just it hurts how do we rediscover these these things? Is there do we do we put it on the shelf? Do we get rid of the knowledge? Do we do we not teach it when it could save lives? Do we just tell someone, "Hey, we know certain things about hypothermia. How we know about them is not ethical, so we want you to go figure out different tests on hypothermia to relearn what we already know." I I don't know how you do that. And while we're trying to figure out this this new way of learning that, like, do we let people die of hypothermia? Like, we, we know understandings of vaccines. Some of them were very unethical. It, it's, it's, a, it's a hard debate. And science seems to have 
settled on that, yes, sometimes we need to use these findings. Sometimes we do, because the amount of lives we can save with them, it doesn't make it better what happened, but it respects the people who suffered for it. We can never give any respect to the people who conducted this research. We need to make sure that their names live in infamy, like Von Braun. He was not a good person. He was a scientist. He, trust me, he knew exactly what was going on in World War II. He was a smart enough guy, and we had scientists who left the Nazis. I'm sure he could have too, or he could have intentionally not made some of the discoveries he did. He's not a good guy. Fucking the U.S. scientists that were involved in the Tuskegee experiments. They're horrible people. And the fact that none of them apparently thought it was wrong enough to go to the press at the time to, like, make it stop. The fact that it just happened and we found out about it so much long after. And just, it's hard. And I actually sent out a message on Twitter as I was just looking into all this where, like I just said, we need to honor the people who were victimized. And we need to make sure that all of those who conducted this research, one, anyone who does this needs to be in jail for life. They don't get out. They get no credit. I, they get no credit. I honestly think if a scientist does this and there's something of value to be found in there, their name should be scrubbed from the record and how it was discovered noted but still their name should be scrubbed. Or maybe not. It, it's hard. It's hard. Because if their names are scrubbed, then we won't know who's disgusting. It's, it's that age-old argument. Do you remove someone's ability to be pointed at and found to be disgusting because you hope that they'll get no fame over it? I don't have the answer to that one. I don't. But I think how scientists deal with it now is the best in the, a shit, just a shitty situation. It, it's a shitty situation that there's nothing, there's no good way to deal with it. And that science, it's not always the easiest thing to do, but it's part of being human and we have to learn with it. We have to develop it. We have to strive to make sure it's more ethical and like all human history, we have to look at what we did in the past and understand that some things that happened were not acceptable and they cannot be allowed to happen again. So there you have it. There are good criticisms of things that have happened in science and there is the stupid. Next up, I'm going to read some really cool science stories, though. And these ones are going to be cool. They're going to be upbeat because science overall, in my opinion is pretty damn upbeat. This first story, when I read it, I actually had to read the title again because I assumed that I misread. I read it, clicked on it, and continued reading and still had my mind completely blown away. There are some who are looking into evidence that there are antimatter stars. You heard me right. There might be, in our galaxy, antimatter stars. 
And the way they may have figured this out is through gamma ray bursts, which are insanely rare, but natural. However, their rareness makes it so having these gamma bursts frequently in these, I believe it's 14 areas in our galaxy, didn't make sense. And apparently, the idea of why this is happening, why these gamma ray bursts are happening, they believe the likely source is when antimatter and matter destroy each other. And they believe the source of this is a star, or, in fact, 14 stars. Now, now Rayla, when she heard this, said, wait, what? Which was my reaction, followed by her more amusing reaction, reaction, which was space, which made me laugh. Seriously, though, this would be something if we, we discovered there are antimatter stars, it would just change a lot about our current worldview. I mean, it might even explain dark matter, which is what the article is mentioning is it might be why there's some matter that we really don't see, which the idea that some of this dark matter that's out there that we don't know what it is, that's contributing to the mass of our universe, might be antimatter. Now, I'm not an astrophysicist, but I know how just, like, incredible that that would be if it was true. That just blows my mind. And I, I barely can think of what that would actually mean. Like, I can think, like, so was there antimatter during the Big Bang? Like, maybe, like, if this is true, did it mean, like, the Big Bang was, like, an antimatter-matter reaction? And maybe most of the antimatter got wiped out? Or, I, I don't know. Could there be antimatter frickin' galaxies out there? Who knows? But, I, yeah... Shocked the hell out of me. I, I'm, my mind just, boom. And another story that I found oddly uplifting is an article, well, a study that states that the human brain recognizes the screams of joy faster than fear. At least that's what the title says. And you'd think that, well, okay, if you're saying that that's what the title says, it has to be more nuanced than that. It's probably certain types of fear, certain types of joy. No, what, what the title leaves out was the fact that they didn't just test fear. They tested, like, pain, screams of pain and surprise and just all other different types of screens, like neutral screens, just someone, like, just screaming, ah. And they they tested each of those. And no, there was no one hurt in these studies. They had people mimic screams of pain and things like that. So, again, like we said in our uh, about ethics, it is not as good of a study. Like, there's more variables in it than if they just took a crowbar to someone's knee. But we don't do that. So they had to mimic screams. And I, I just found it a little uplifting and interesting because it is very different than what we think when we think of how we evolved. So screams of joy, apparently our brain registers quicker than pain and fear. Another uplifting story that I found, and this is more of a hopeful uplifting than a wow, that's cool hopeful, is researchers have designed an experimental drug 
that reverses key symptoms of Alzheimer's disease in mice. The drug works by reinvigorating a cellular cleaning mechanism that gets rid of unwanted proteins by digesting and recycling them. Now, it's noted that mice do have less complex parts of the brain, and it does mean that it is far from something we can just move on to study in people. It's just that because mice breed faster, we can find mice with Alzheimer's easier. And again, ethically, we, we don't want to just give drugs to people with Alzheimer's that we're not quite sure what it could do. But still, from reading this article in Science Daily, it seems very hopeful. And that makes me feel awesome because I know Alzheimer's is a horrible, horrible disease, both for the person who suffers from it and their loved ones. So hopefully we're going to see some more progress with this new medication. The other story that I want to cover is everyone knows about the helicopter on Mars, which just the fact that a helicopter can be on Mars is awesome. It, it seems like something that's like, well, we have helicopters on Earth. We have helicopters on Mars. What's the difference? There's a lot of difference because how air works. I'm not like a major scientist. Like, I love science, but I couldn't explain it to you in as good of a way as scientists do. So I'm sure you can find whole YouTubes on why helicopters on Mars are so iffy. It, we didn't know if we could do it. But basically, it's because the air is thinner and because of how gravity and all these other variables. Apparently, the tests have gone so well that they're extending the flights. They're going to have them go farther and longer, which is awesome. And honestly, this could go a long way for just finding things on Mars, because it's easier and safer to have something fly than move along the ground, because We've seen rovers, like, going along the surface of Mars, hitting a rock, falling over, getting stuck on a rock. So if we can just fly crater to crater, we can get more samples, we can bring it back to the probes, we can drop off samples, have, we can, like, send them back to Earth to analyze, we can analyze them there with our new sophisticated probes. And just the idea that finding, like, we've already found evidence of water on Mars, we found evidence that there there might be more water on Mars. We've found some evidence that we believe that there's a decent probability that there was probably at one point maybe life on Mars. And it would be life-altering if we find life on Mars now. Like, already if we can definitely confirm 100% that there was life on Mars, that would be life-altering in and of itself. But if we found life on Mars and we could, like, test its DNA, that, like, I'm, I'll geek out if we're able to do that because, like, the amount of knowledge. I am smiling so big right now because just the idea of, like, finding DNA on Mars. Ooh, holy shit. And I hope it makes you smile, too, because for a long time, people like, wouldn't it be awesome to live in the future? And we, we kind of do. We, we live in, like, really cool times scientifically. 
And we're not flying around in a Millennium Falcon or on the U.S. Enterprise. And we don't have warp technology or stargates or anything. But, I mean, we have some pretty cool stuff. And as evidence, I think, through this entire show, science is always trying to do better. And I think in some ways, even if we don't try to do everything logically and scientifically at all times, because, frankly, that would be kind of boring. But I think we can all learn from science. And that's part of the reason why I think it's cool. But it's the time where I say, thank you for listening. And this has been Why Satan and Hail Satan. I'll be honest, this episode was super fun to do because I learned a whole bunch of new stuff. And I hope you did too. 